This is the uh, last week of our headline series. Um, I know that this is, uh, in many ways, a challenging series. Um, it uh, raises a lot of questions. It creates, uh, I know that individuals in our church have experienced uh, even some levels of anxiety, of wrestling with some of these things and not knowing their role in it and how to be involved. And, you know, these are big issues and there's not easy solutions. And so we are opening up some, you know, conversations that, that don't have a, a clear, uh, easy response. And I know that that can be challenging. So I appreciate you all being just a community that's willing to engage in that and, and keep uh, coming back. This is the last week. Uh, it won't be last time we talk about something difficult. It won't be last time we, we wrestle with a current uh, event. Um, in fact, uh, before we did this series, we, um, we asked you all, uh, on a, a survey that we did on Sunday morning, what, what topics you wish we were covering. Uh, we got your responses back. I'm going to share those with you uh, in just a second, not yet. Um, but, uh, you know, the things that we settled on for this series have been human trafficking. We did that a couple weeks ago. Um, and then we talked about immigration and specifically refugees. Um, we have a, an event coming up in October where we're going to actually sit down with a sanctuary church and someone living in sanctuary. If you missed that and you're interested in that, there might be a spot or two left. We're going to sit down with, uh, have dinner with Miriam. So you can let me know. We might have a, a, an extra spot or two. Um, and then we also last week did a talk around gentrification and economic and racial segregation, some of these kind of big topics. Uh, you can check all those out on the podcast if you missed them and you're interested. Uh, today we're going to deal with the opioid epidemic. Um, before we do, here's some of the topics that you wish we had covered, some of the, the responses. Now, we didn't give you a list to choose from. We just let people fill in a blank, and then I took those. We had 36 responses for that question, and I took those and put them into categories, and here's, here's kind of how they landed. So uh, people said immigration. Um, people said mental health. We had three people say something along the lines. I, um, these are categories. They might have used other words, but something along the lines of mental health. Um, climate change, three people said something regarding climate change or maybe creation care, environmental stuff. Uh, sexism, uh, four individuals wrote something that fell into the category of racism. Um, uh, two people mentioned health care in general, which is certainly a topic that uh, intersects with our conversation today. Uh, someone mentioned student debt. Someone mentioned something relating to education. Two people mentioned white supremacy. You can probably throw that in with, some, with the racism conversation. Um, uh, two people mentioned something along the lines of like the intersection of politics and the church and I don't remember the exact language they chose but it was that kind of category um, four people said something along the lines of gun control or mass shootings they said hey let's, let's spend some time talking about that a couple of people said infant mortality. This is something we're engaged in locally, working around issues of infant mortality. And then six people said something that fell into the category of LGBTQ plus um, community or individuals. So that's uh, some of the topics that people in our community uh, said, hey, you know, like this would be a good thing to wrestle with. This would be a good thing to, to spend some time asking the question, what is Jesus's response to this? How do we, you know, as Christians, how do we deal with this locally? That sort of thing. Um, I'm sure you're not surprised by any of these, right? This is the type of things that we, we all have to wrestle with. Now, I'm not sure. Maybe some of these will make it if we do headlines again next year. Uh, some of these might be the topics we cover. Otherwise, some of these might just show up in conversations that we are talking about other things. Um, I'm sure at some point in the next year, my hope is to deal with creation care, climate change. You know, it's a passion of mine. What does God, the scripture has an immense amount to say about the environment. But all of these things, uh, the Bible and Jesus has something to say. And so they'll probably show up. I'm not sure when. I'm not sure exactly how. But these are some of the things that we might move forward um, discussing in the future. But I thought you'd just want to know, you know, what people's response were to that question. What do you wish we were covering? Now, 
the other question, one of the other questions we asked in the survey was how divided Christians are over the four topics we are covering. So human trafficking, uh, immigration, um, gentrification, and uh, the drug abuse, drug addiction, opioids specifically. And um, generally speaking, you know, immigration scored pretty high as being divided. Christians are fairly divided. You know that already. Um, even gentrification scored a little high. But when it came to human trafficking and opioids, they scored a, a fairly lower. And that trend um, can be seen in America as well. Americans might not agree um, with the source of the problem or even how to handle this problem of the opioid crisis, but Americans are relatively in agreement that there is a problem. Before the last presidential election, the Pew Research Center surveyed potential voters on a variety of social issues. Now, unsurprisingly, researchers found, it took researchers to figure this out, that Trump supporters and Clinton supporters didn't agree on very much. Right? They didn't agree on much. There was, however, one exception. When asked if they considered drug addiction a very big problem in the country uh, today, 56% of Clinton supporters and 62% of Trump supporters said yes. The survey covered issues from, you know, illegal immigration to gun violence to climate change, these topics that we put up on the screen. But the problem of drug abuse was the only area where a majority on both sides agreed. It's a problem. It's a crisis. This is what the crisis looks like. According to the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, 142 Americans die every day from a drug overdose. Every day, 142. With most of those deaths related to something regarding opioids. Overdoses are now the leading cause of death for persons under 50. Here's a quote um, from the White House. Uh, Drug overdoses now kill more people than gun homicides and car crashes combined. In fact, between 1999 and 2015, more than uh, 560,000 people in this country died due to drug overdoses. This is a death toll larger than the entire population of Atlanta. If you zoom into Ohio, um, even just specifically Franklin County, you'll find that Ohio is many ways sadly leading the way. Um, from January 1st, 2017 to December 31st, 2017, there were 520 overdose deaths in Franklin County. They, the Franklin County Coroner's Office says this not, uh, the exact number. They're still processing a number of those cases, but that's where it currently stands, 520 overdose. That's Franklin County specifically. And they've seen from 2016 to 2017 a 47.3% increase in overdose deaths. I got a chance to um, sit down with uh, the Franklin County coroner. You know, there's just not something that I expected to ever do when I went to seminary to be a pastor. But I, in preparation for this talk, you know, I asked the question to a number of people, you know, what, who should I be talking to? And the coroner was on the top of a lot of people's list. So I I reached out uh, to Dr. Ortez and and asked uh, if I could get a meeting. I was surprised she was very gracious and met with me. And we we sat down in her office and I was able to ask her some questions and I was still learning at the time. But she she shared uh, this graph with me. This is uh, overdose deaths per 100,000 from 1979 to 2016. Um, and how it's increased. So this is why we use the term epidemic or crisis. It's a significant, significant amount 
of growth. The question becomes, what happened? You know, like, how did, what happened? What's going on here? That's the question that I've been uh, researching and (laughs) interviewing and trying to figure out. Met with a lot of people. I'll share that uh, a little bit. In the past couple of weeks, we've had the chance to interview people, to learn directly from them. We sat down with Hannah. We sat down with Tyler, if you're with us. Um, This week, I'm approaching it a little bit more like an investigative reporter, probably going to regret it at the end. But we just, as far as like having an interview, it just didn't work out. Uh, In fact, I was getting information uh, as, as, as early as last night, um, learning. So thank you, Stephen, for, for that very informed email. I'm tempted to just read it all, but I, I'm not going to. Um, he ended the email. It's a thousand words. I wanted to, because I count word count, to see whether, how long something takes. I have a metric for this. Um, so I know how long my sermons are, friends. And uh, I was like, so I wanted to see. It's a thousand words. He ends by saying, I hope it didn't bore you too much. But you didn't. You didn't. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm gathering all this information. And, and what I want to do, hopefully, is at some point near the end, I'm still honestly formulating my thoughts. Um, but I want to share with you um, some of the thoughts. Now, I had a chance, of course, I mentioned I sat down with the coroner. I talked about overdose deaths. I sat down with someone in recovery, someone who's experienced recovery personally, and, and, and I heard their stories. I, I sat down and, or I emailed various doctors, many, three different medical professionals in our community. I don't know if you knew this. There's a fair number of medical professionals. How many medical professionals are in the room right now? Nurse, doctor, pharmacist? You got a few? Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's often quite a few. I, I sat down with, I, I chatted with two doctors, uh, Stephen, Mary Lauren, as well as a pharmacist who's a part of our community and asked questions around, you know, this from their perspective. Got to chat with a, a firefighter, a paramedic. Um, who's often responding to overdose. I got to sit down with someone uh, or hear someone share who does homeless outreach and goes into some of the camps. Not all camps are, are, uh, are filled with heroin users, but there's a few in Columbus that, uh, you know, and he talked about the piles of trash and how there's needles everywhere and how you have to be very careful when you go into these, into these camps. And I got to sit down and just listen and learn. Uh, I watched some documentaries and so it's not, it's not a surprise to you all. There's just too much to share. You know, it's just too much. Um, and honestly, I'm still trying to make sense of it all. So before I go any further, I just hope you'll hear this uh, today. Um, whatever I say specifically about this thing, this topic, it, it, I don't have no authority on it. I'm a theologian. That's what I went to school for. I've been trained to be a theologian, uh, which means I learned how to research things and study and think intelligently. Uh, but I feel fairly confident as a theologian. I'm, I'm not always right when it comes to theology. I'll just tell you that. I'm probably only 70% right. You have to figure out what the 30% is. Um, but, but I'm comfortable, and I feel called to speak authoritatively on issues of theology. So, so at any point, if I open Scripture and I say, I think this is what God is saying, I'm, generally I feel like I'm a trustworthy individual. Um, I might always be right, but it's my area. The rest of the outside of that is not my area. And, and I think today you'll hopefully learn something, but like many of you, I'm still putting these puzzle pieces together. So before I get into the thick of it, I do want to just start from a personal place, because we are authorities on our own experience. My house um, overlooks a couple of empty lots, and um, they're places that will be sold someday for a ridiculous amount of money, and new houses will be built there. That's, uh, that's last week's conversation. And it's right now, it's just a yard for kids to play in. It's a parking lot for random cars or people working on their cars. And it's a great place for people to dump trash. So there's a nice little dump back there that people, um, many of who aren't our neighbors, illegally dump. We don't have very many ho- uh, windows on that side of the house because not that long ago, there was a house right next door, right? It was this urban, very closely 
situated houses. So we don't have very many windows, but I have, we have a few. Um, and I'm upstairs, and I can hear through one room into the next, into the bathroom, through the open window, I hear something. Someone is crying, someone's talking, someone's yelling, some hybrid of crying and talking and yelling and not making any sense. So I go into my bathroom, I pull uh, down the window even more so I can see past the opaque glass and lying in the pile of trash near the alley is this woman. She's wearing shorts and a t-shirt. She's covered in mud and dirt and trash. She's yelling, she's crying, she's rolling around. She's tearing her clothes in the trash, in, the, in pain. So I yell down the stairs, I say, Alyssa, come upstairs, bring your phone. Alyssa comes up, I show her through the window, she calls the police. The woman continues, and eventually the police come, and they call the paramedics, and, and they take care of her. Now, I have to leave. i got to take Finn to child care. So I leave Alyssa at home with the police, and I, I, drive, I, I leave to get Finn to child care. And uh, she begins to have a conversation with the police. She tells them um, that this is the second person in a 24-hour period that has been erratic in the alley behind our house just acting a little crazy. The last one was an individual. He wasn't rolling in the mud, but he was talking, yelling, not making any sense. He was behind our garage, behind our privacy fence. Um, so she tells him that she's, you know, there's a new drug house, just a couple houses down from, from, from where, where we were. And, and I mentioned this last week, but there was one directly behind us. Um, just behind the alley, there was this house. We actually helped get it uh, shut down. If I'm completely honest with you, we provided information to the local city attorney who also lives in our neighborhood, who builds the cases against houses like this. It was a danger. It was a blight in our neighborhood. So we, we engaged in that process. We provided information. We provided our witness. And uh, that house got shut down. We're pretty sure that family eventually moved to a van, uh, stayed in the neighborhood, and then eventually found a house a couple of houses down. And so she's telling the police that. And she's also asking, because, because this house moved into our neighborhood just a couple houses down, um, annoyingly, what that means is they get a lot of traffic, a lot of cars, and so this uh, we keep getting these cars parked in front of our gate. Now we park uh, one of our ve- one of the vehicles in in the the fenced in area, and they keep parking, blocking our gate. And and so she's asking, how do we get this truck moved? If, or, and thankfully the truck moved, but otherwise we would have had to get it towed. But she tells them, I think it's a house that's moved just down. And the police say, you know, it took three overdoses in the house, which was right behind us before that house got shut down. And uh, so who knows when this other one's going to get shut down. That's when we learned that literally behind us on the other side of the alley, three people passed away because of a drug overdose. We knew there was a house. I didn't know there were overdoses. One in the house, two in the house, and one in the garage. All of this happened in the last seven days. Yeah, it's just... The story, this experience, this woman, this man, it was this week. Not an entirely normal week for us, but it felt rather providential, considering the topic we're doing today. Now, I share this with you, not so that you would feel sorry for us, um, uh, or even be jealous in some weird way, however you land, but because here's the thing. Over the last week, we've encountered overdose um, stories over and over again. This week, we had a friend whose sister-in-law passed away from an overdose and whose six-year-old daughter is now living with them. 
I have a, a friend who is currently on pain medication who shared with me that they went through significant withdrawal because of the pain medication and said at the end of it, like, I understand why there's an epidemic. This was really, really difficult. If my life circumstances were different, I don't know if I would have, how I would have responded. All of this happened in the last seven days. But specifically with the families living, uh, just the, 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 the drug houses, um, you know, two years ago when we moved to Franklinton, I remember the first night we slept in this house that needed fixed up. And uh, we could hear everyone outside. I'm from Hicksville, Ohio, by the way, friends. And I lived in Athens before this. This is a new experience for me. And I remember being so scared. Two years now, two years later, not scared. This is our home. We love it. We don't want to be anywhere else. We've, and honestly, we've come a little bit numb. And this is what it looks like to be numb, to check out, to sort of like be around it so much. And I'm sharing this because I know some of you are here as well because of your professions and the way you work and the people you work. You, be, you kind of have to check out a little bit. And it's a healthy thing to do. So this is what it looks like to check out. Of everything that happened this week, the thing that got me emotionally charged the most, and I'm going to share this with you because I think some of you can relate. The thing that got me the most annoyed, the most frustrated, the most emotionally charged was these people who keep parking their cars in front of my gate. I'm sharing that. I'm human, friends. That's what I'm, I'm, you know, like that. I was, I have a sign. It says, do not park. We will tell you. And they still park there. And I look over the week, even in the ways in which, you know, things that break my heart, the things that could break my heart, if I'm completely honest with you, that's the thing that bothers me. I'm going to reflect on that for just a second. Because I I think some of you will be able to relate to how this works. Um, Two observations. The fact that people are parking in front of my gate and blocking access to my gate, that's my safe area. You know what I mean? I've got boundaries in my life. And I don't need you encroaching on my boundaries. Do, do you know what I'm saying? We, we, all, we all have space that's like, this is ours, and the big problems in the world, I kind of need them to stay a little bit further away. I don't need them to encroach on my space. Um, it brings the problem too close, it brings it too close for comfort. It makes it a little annoying. It's personal. We're going to spend some time, and we've been spending time dealing with a variety of issues, all of these big issues. And we're going to talk about opioids here in just a little bit. We're going to try to dig into it. We're going to try to learn a little bit. But most of us, not all of us, but a lot of us are going to deal with it as someone looking down from an upstairs bathroom at something that's happening over there or something happening on the other side of your fence, right, as a metaphor. It's not... It's, but here's the thing you need to realize, and this is what I want us to, to, to just sit with for a second. That's not everyone's story. There are people who are experiencing this, and it's not on the other side of the fence, and it's not in someone else's yard. It's not in someone else's neighborhood. It's in their life. Just as we are setting up this morning, we are chatting with different volunteers, and I would say the majority of our volunteers who are here have experienced in some personal way something regarding drug addiction or an opioid overdose. I was sharing with someone of our volunteers just told me that nine different high school peers, people they went to high school with, have overdosed. Nine. And even sometimes that's still over there. It's still this other thing. But what I want us to realize as Christians, the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ enters, he moves into the neighborhood. It's the basis of the incarnation. It's one of the most prime. If you're like, I don't know what, 
I don't know how to respond to some of the things. One of the ways we respond is asking the question, how can I be more like Jesus and enter into it? This is the verse that I, that I really want us to, if you're going to walk away with something, this, I have two verses before we get into our talk that I want you to hold on to. This applies to this topic. It applies to most topics. Okay, the first one is this. It's out of Romans. It's quoting out of the Old Testament. So it's an Old Testament, New Testament principle. It's across the board in the Bible. It says this, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You cannot, friends, hear this. You cannot overlook the absolute significance and importance of this verse. Memorize it. The problem is, is that we're too uncomfortable to dance, we're too uncomfortable to celebrate, and we're also too uncomfortable to mourn, so we kind of live life kind of even keel. We're not really celebrating when people celebrate, and we're not really feeling when people feel. The Christian mandate from the, from the heart of God is we enter into people's stories at such a level that when something good is happening, we rejoice and we celebrate, and it's a good thing. And when something devastating happens, we find a way to enter in and to mourn. This is coming from someone who's an eight. If anyone knows Enneagram, it's not my, this is not my specialty. That's all you need to know. But this is what we were called to, to enter into, to feel what other people, when life becomes overwhelming for someone else, we allow it to, you know, we enter into that. Now, for those who are engaged in this work on a regular basis, or for even Alyssa and I who are kind of living around it, it's, it's entirely healthy to disengage, right? It's entirely healthy to have healthy boundaries and to, you know, to put up, put up you know, privacy fences, I think, and to have some separation because it, it could become exhausting to mourn with every single person who's suffering when, when there's a high concentration of it. And I know some of the various people who work in fields that in, in, engage people in suffering. This is, this is a, a, a healthy thing. And so... As we dig into this, as we wrestle with all of these different topics, you know, it's, it's, it's the two responses I'm hearing from some people, well, maybe three. One is people would find it interesting and helpful, you know, educational. People are, some people find it overwhelming. And some people kind of just are checking out. Um, it's just too much to kind of like, I don't know what to do with this. Um, and and for, for this topic, but also for all of these things, what I really encourage you to is, is just another Another verse that I think I would hope that you could sort of hold on to, uh, also another good memory verse for this series, but for any issue that's, that's in the world, and it's simply Galatians 6, 9 through 10. It's a great verse. I encourage you to write it down, encourage you to memorize it, encourage you to reflect on it, and it simply says this, let us not become weary in doing good. Friends, there are people, I know there are you, there, you are here, and there are people here who are already weary of doing good. It's become hard, and I don't know what that hard is. I don't know what you're engaged in. I don't know where you're volunteering. I don't know where you're working, but there are people here. You know what it feels like to be, and if you don't know what it feels like to be weary doing good, you will if you try to do good. It happens. It becomes overwhelming. It becomes hard. It becomes difficult. It says, do not become weary and do again, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It's this idea to keep pressing on. He goes on to say, therefore, as you have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. Starts there, says, let us do good to all people, and then especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I encourage you that I don't always know the right way to respond. I don't always know um, how to address uh, different topics or even what's going to make the biggest difference, but my encouragement to you is hold on to this verse, memorize it. We cannot grow weary 
We cannot just check out. We cannot just give up. We've got to be willing to keep pressing on, and eventually God will come. God will do things. We will see progress. I hope that's an encouragement to you all. So I want to spend some time talking about opioids in general. Um, I don't have a lot of time uh, to do that, but we've got a few minutes. And um, I'll just be honest with you. This is, um, this is a very, very complex issue. Um, so I'm going to start in a couple different places. First, let me give you some insight on how this issue intersects with the other three that we've covered. So here's, here's the first one. First week, we talked about human trafficking. This was brought up uh, that week, uh, human trafficking. One of the tools in the trafficker's toolbook is drugs. It's, a, it's one of the primary force, fear, these, these, uh, violence. These are ways in which men, uh, predominantly men, uh, traffic uh, women. One of the other tools is drug addiction. If you can get someone addicted to a highly addictive drug, then they're more likely to do a lot of different things. There's a lot of research and numbers on that, but that's one of the places where human trafficking and, and drugs intersect. Next week, we talked about immigration. One of the statistics I found this week um, from my good friend, the immigration lawyer who loves to post things on Facebook, great uh, resource if you want to follow someone on Facebook who's smart on immigration stuff, I can give you his uh, inf- information. He's a United Methodist pastor. He's also an immigration lawyer. Uh, he, he serves part-time at a church and then does immigration law full-time, so he, uh, interesting, uh, interesting guy. But he shared a, an article um, that says 77% of drug traffickers are U.S. citizens, just another sort of intersection. As we talk about this bigger issue of immigration and the language and conversations around people entering and trafficking drugs, 77, the vast majority of people who are bringing drugs into the country are U.S. citizens, according to federal drug trafficking convictions in 2018. So just another area where they intersect. And the last one, last week we talked about gentrification. And, 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 and this, is, this, is, this is one that I'm a little more fluent in. One drug house in our neighborhood got shut down. They moved down two houses. People come to me sometimes and they say, oh, that neighborhood's really improving. You know, What that means is, is the problems are moving. They're not necessarily getting solved. So this is part of that gentrification conversation. Like what, uh, simply a neighborhood improving, what that usually means is eventually the house is just going to keep getting moved down. Eventually, it'll be moved up the hill. There's entire community conversations happening on the hilltop about what to do with everyone who's moving out of Franklinton into the hilltop or into Linden. So it's not necessarily fixing a problem uh, when neighborhoods improve. Um, what it does is it displaces the problem, and it makes it someone else's problem. So those are some of the places where those three intersect. Now let's get into uh, the conversation around opioids. I want to start by does it make this a little bit more conversational. When it comes to this issue, we haven't really we've given you some really brief statistics. What are some of the um, and you can you can raise your hand at any point because I'm gonna this part's gonna be just like a 10, 10 minute conversation where I'm gonna share some stuff that I've learned. Um, what are some of the questions that you have? I just want to throw that out right now. What are some of the questions you have? Um, and I obviously don't have all the answers, but I've learned a fair amount, and I can't share everything. Um, and then there's actually people in the room who know much more than me that could probably answer your question as well, not to put you all on the spot. But um, think about that for a second. And is there anything that comes to mind right away before we get into it? What are some of the questions? Or categories of topics? 
Ah. Why is this happening? Yeah, that's a good question. Any, any others? Well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we're going to jump into that, but just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're you're talking about there's there's some like shaming, some joking, some separation. This isn't my problem. Yeah, yeah. Someone else's problem. Someone else's neighborhood. Someone else's issue. Yeah, Leanne. Well, it's a, there's a lot of judgment. Hmm. Judgment. You know, one of the things, so she's talking about the judgment and experience. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of shame. Uh, of, of every medical or, or person who works in this field, one of the things they said, I said, so what, what can we do? What, what's, what's one of the issues that the church can respond to? And they said almost 100% of the time, although I can't remember every conversation perfectly, they said there's still this amount of shame, judgment, separation, uh, especially among some churches where, the treatment someone needs to get out of an addiction often becomes less accessible if they're experiencing shame because of the, I mean, it's just logical. And so one of the things that the church can do is, is have these kinds of conversations and recognize that, um, that there's, that there, the thing that I've heard the vast majority from medical professionals is this idea that addiction is a disease, and then you have to kind of separate the disease from the individual and that there's room to love the individual and want good for the individual and recognize that this addiction is... This is hard for me because I'm interacting with people near my home, near where my kid plays, right? So it's hard for me to think of people this way. And I'm sure for those who interact in various settings, it could be hard. But it's this invitation to say, no, this is a disease, this is a problem, and, and all that. So, so the question of, like, why is this happening, this issue of judgment and shame, uh, any other questions that come to mind? Let me try to answer a question why this is happening. I'm pulling from a variety of sources. I'm not an expert on this. I'm going to share what I've learned. Um, there's a number of things that are happening. When you look at that chart from the 1970s all the way up to 2000, and it's spiking, um, there's a number of issues at play. Um, one of the issues is that drug addiction is a, is a problem, and it's always been a problem. And so drug addiction kind of shifts based on the, the least resistance. And so as we've kind of fought against certain drugs like methamphetamines and we've kind of brought those under control and less access, opioids became sort of the path of least existence. They were readily accessible. And this was coupled with some ha- stuff that's happening in the pharmacy industry. So this gets really complicated. I'm not going to be able to articulate this well, but this is something that's very influential in this problem where you had companies, um, one that was just, there are a number of them that, that are in the news right now for lawsuits. The maker of Oxycontin was just in the news. They're going to declare bankruptcy because of this loss, big lawsuit because they too aggressively pushed opioids and they undersold their addictive properties. So you have these pharmaceutical companies which are trying to make a profit and make significant profits and um, who are at one point telling doctors that this is safe, this is good, this is not addictive. And so what's happening is doctors 
for the most part, and I talked to a lot of doctors, so they made this, you know, this, uh, for the most part are coming from a good place around pain management. Right around the same time, something's happening in the medical field. I, I sat down with a pharmacist, and she kind of explained this. It was called the fifth vital sign. And so when, when was this kind of introduced, medical people? Do you remember? In the last decade, and it's pain management. So it's this idea that you, one of the vital signs, one of the things that you're trying to care for a patient is their pain management. And so you, the problem is you can't quantify that. How do you know how much someone is experiencing pain? You can, you can check their blood pressure. You can check these other things, and you have a, a number. But pain management, it's subjective, right? So you're asking people to rate their pain on a scale of 1 to 10. How many have done this before in a doctor's office? Yeah. Or for kids, you've got the little smiley faces, right? And so there's this fifth vital sign where you're trying to manage people's pain. And then you have these pharmaceutical companies that are saying, hey, there's a really great way. It'll take people's pain away and very significant. You know, it's very good, and it's not addictive. And so you have various medical professionals uh, prescribing opioids for pain. Now, I don't know the numbers, but it's not always just an issue of um, someone getting prescribed opioids and then becoming a drug addict. But 76 to 80% of people in substance abuse started with a legally prescribed prescription. Okay, so this is a source of sorts. It's not always because... I was prescribed a prescription. In fact, maybe it's not usually because I was prescribed a prescription and then I got addicted, although I know of personal stories um, where that's been the case. Uh, the other issue is prescribing a large number of prescriptions and you then have those accessible. You don't use them all. You don't, you don't need them. You're good after a couple of days or whatever, and now they're sitting in your med- medicine cabinet and someone else steals them, and then you kind of become addicted. Well, the other thing that's happening is as, uh, so, so a variety of new restrictions have come into place. I'm sorry if this is scattered or, or, or not helpful, friends, but I'm, I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, a variety of new medic, uh, restrictions have come into place in regards to what doctors could prescribe and why. Now, um, for ongoing prescription of opioids, um, you, you really have to be a, a doctor that specializes in chronic pain. So someone in hospice, someone in oncology, someone who has, like uh, uh, like Stephen, this is something you shared with me, someone who has the expertise around what does it mean to help someone walk through the correct use of opioids, the correct doses, and, and, and you know. So the normal doctor, whereas before you could be an ER doctor and prescribe someone opioids, you're never going to see that person again. So now you're not following up. There's no conversation. Um, and, uh, and that's an issue. When I talked to the pharmacist, uh, Emily, she's a part of our church, um, she was explaining one of the other things that's happened that's really helped this is actually e-prescriptions, which I thought was really interesting. She said one of the things that was when you had to have a paper prescription and you lived out in remote Ohio, um, it was logical to then give a prescription that didn't require you to come back in three days for another paper prescription to get a refill. Um, and so that resulted in you know, on average, higher levels of prescriptions. So now you have these pills hanging out in rural places of Ohio and medicine cabinets and all that sort of stuff. With e-prescriptions, you send it directly to it, um, and, and then you don't have to have as many uh, accessible. The other, the other thing along those lines is some of the restrictions in regards to what you can prescribe. If you're not in the specialized field, um, you, you have uh, like a five-day limit or, or something like that. Um, and so what's happening is you've got this Typical sort of like individuals living in difficult situations, people who experience trauma. This is a big part of it. 
People who live in poverty, it's not limited to just people who live in poverty. Um, it is a majority white, but an increasing amount of African Americans are dying from overdose. But it has been historically a majority white uh, issue. Um, but people who live in poverty, people who don't know where their meal's gonna come from, where their housing, all of these issues play into an overall sense of hopelessness. And then you add to that readily accessible drugs. First, maybe through prescriptions that you took from somebody or because you got a 30-day prescription of a variety, you know, a variety of pills or, or your neighbor had them and you stole them, to getting more readily accessible drugs that are much cheaper. So to get a shot of heroin, anyone know how much that cost? You said $2? Uh, yeah, on average, uh, the, the firefighter I met with said 10 $10. So, I mean, it's not, it's not expensive, um, and, and you, can, you can get hit up. So it's very accessible. And because of technology, this is something the coroner brought up, because of technology, cell phones, it's even more accessible. I mean, you can text your, you know, you can text for it, and like, they probably have their own version of Uber maybe sometimes. I don't know. But that technology makes it more accessible. So you've got this prescription thing going on. You've got this, uh, especially those living in poverty and this sense of trauma and this sense of like just needing this sense of like hope. And then you've got... Um, just readily accessible, whether it's because of uh, previous laws in regards to prescription, but even more so in neighborhoods like ours, where you know right where to go to, and you can get it, and you can get it for pretty cheap. Um, it's cheaper than going to a, significantly cheaper than going to a nice restaurant. It's maybe even cheaper than going to McDonald's, um, and it'll make you feel a lot, lot better. Uh, that's a lot of different things. Any, any questions spur from that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, please. Um, my youngest is 23, and one of his classmates was in Caroline during the end of high school and their first year out. And she was actually interviewed by 2020 or Frontline or something. And you were saying technology, all she had to do was text her contact, mm. and they'd bring it to her house and put it under the doormat. Yeah, so you heard that. You know, technology just increases the access. So we, and we're talking specifically, you look at the graph, and it's, you know, 1970s is here, and now it's way up here. The coroner said one of the issues is the improvement in technology. So you can text someone. That's what Leanne's saying. You, she, uh, she could text someone, and it would show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's the other part of it is this isn't limited, and this is something that uh, most people I talked to said. It's not limited to my experience of in a neighborhood that's kind of happening out in the open almost, but it's happening in every neighborhood. It's happening in the lives of neighbors near you. I promise you. There's somebody within walking distance of you who's, who's had someone in their life be impacted by uh, a drug addiction. Yeah. Okay, so there's so the question is is like what's the root? You know, like what's people are using it to cure something to medicate something? There's there's two sides of that conversation. This gets complicated. On the one hand, I mean, when you become addicted, you don't necessarily need it to medicate any other problems. You are addicted because it's extremely addictive. Fentanyl, um, which uh, is the really the leading cause of overdose, 
is 100 times more potent than morphine. 100 times more potent than morphine. So if you've ever been on morphine, it's 100 times more than that, which means it's that much more addictive. It, happened, it works that much quicker. So you could just get addicted, and then you're addicted. It's, it's your body is telling you you need it. Is that, is that fair? The, the other side of it is some social commentary in regards to, okay, are there some underlying issues that makes people feel like they need it even, you know, uh, you know in general? And the coroner spoke about that when I met with her and had some conversation around this sense of hopelessness. And as one of the things we've seen since the 1970s is a greater wealth gap. Uh, so people who are living with more wealth versus those who are living in more extreme poverty, so the declining middle class. So she named that as one of the conversations around the issue. And that goes back to this issue. If you have an increasing number of people who don't know where they're going to live next month, they don't know where they're going to eat tomorrow, they don't know, you know, they might not be able to keep their kids. All of this creates a certain level of trauma. And so you're living in sort of a current traumatic state, not a post-traumatic, but a current traumatic state. And, and she suggested that that also plays into this need to medicate. That doesn't answer the question then for people who are... Um, but what's interesting is then you, you have individuals who are living in you know, more affluent neighborhoods who are also experiencing a sense of hopelessness. Now, I would say as a pastor that anytime there's segregation or people who are living in very different worlds across boundaries, it creates hopelessness on both sides. Um, and I don't know exactly how that works other than I, I just know that God created us to be together. And so I think there's a, an increasing amount of hopelessness amongst wealthy individuals for the same reason there's an increasing amount of hopelessness around poor individuals because we are just living that kind of segregated lives. And uh, it, it, um, it hurts us in ways that sometimes we don't miss. So that's part of the conversation. Yeah, so when you, hopefully you heard that, as I, there's no way I can repeat it, but, um, sorry podcast, I should have passed the mic around, but, uh, um, you know, I forgot what I was going to say, but, um, yeah, thank you, Stephen, yeah, yeah. Um, I said, when did all this start? And she said, it's 
started when she was 13 and her mother made her take a pill. And that's when it started. Yeah, I um, uh, we can't, you know, the, the amount of trauma that's in individuals' lives is extremely significant. Um, I have uh, uh, more so had, I, I, we haven't talked in a while, but I had a friend who grew up in an extremely traumatic family. And I mean, the, the kind of stuff they make movies about that you don't want to watch, right? Just very traumatic, high levels of violence and manipulation and power. And he told me, he said, you know, my nephew or cousin or, you know, kid, he told him, he said, I don't know if he thought this was good advice when he, now, but he thought it was good advice then. He said, the first thing you got to do is get high, get on drugs, and when you leave the family, get clean. Like, that was the advice he gave his, like, younger person in his life because his family was so, he's like, it's the only way you'll survive the family. Um, I don't think that's good advice, right? But that's the world that he was living in where it was, it was, it was a way in which you lived with, your difficulty. The other conversation is you talk about mental health, and you, if you're following current events, mental health in America is not good. There's a lot of issues. You know, there's just a lot of things happening in the world of mental health, and it's becoming an issue uh, across economic and racial boundaries. And so that also then, of course, as you said, influences the drug addiction. If you've got people who are experiencing high levels of trauma or anxiety or a variety of things, it makes, makes you more at risk than, you know, for for addiction. Other questions or comments from our unofficial panel? So, sitting here listening to all this, it starts to sound way heavy, and you hear yeah. about it on Facebook, you hear about it on the news. Yeah. What is it, or what is there that you found in research or talking with people who've been here, or even the medical professionals in the room? What is it that we can do? Yeah. Yeah, it's great because that's that's what we're going to end on. So um, thank you for that segue. Um, there's a number of uh, number of, of thoughts. The first one is education, just like we talked about last week, learning and dealing with this issue of how, especially Christians, have a have a tone of judgment or shame how we talk about it, and so recognizing that people are really suffering and having just a certain coming from a place of compassion and awareness um, can actually help somebody. I was sitting down with Mary Lauren, who works with um, in regards to infant mortality at Nationwide. She's working with um, babies who are born to mothers who experience, who've been on drugs, and some of them even gone through recovery, but the impact, um, it's called um, neonatal abstinence syndrome. Whew, got it. And, um, you know, essentially an infant, a completely innocent person in this whole equation is born and going through withdrawal, and it can last for weeks. But she said to me that sometimes the shame of that, especially for a parent, you know, and the judgment that probably that I cast towards someone who does drugs who's pregnant. I'm going to be honest with you, okay? The judgment I have towards someone who does drugs who are pregnant. So let's just be real. That contributes to the problem because the additional resources and help that she needs sometimes is avoided because of the shame or the sense of judgment. So I'm just going to pretend like it didn't happen. So I go to the doctor less. I go to follow-ups less. I go to the developmental meetings less. So one of the things is education and just trying to minimize the amount of shame or casting on people and seeing it as a problem. The other issue is there's a variety of uh, nonprofits 
uh, that are doing significant work in recovery. And they're always in need of donations. They're always in need of volunteers. There's ways to support that. Um, and there's a variety of ways you can support. Uh, one of the speakers we were going to come and it didn't work out was with The Refuge. They're an organization we work with that focuses on recovery mostly for men. And they just opened a women's division. They do part of their recovery is volunteer work. That's how we know them. They've done hours of volunteer work with us at Little Bottoms Free Store. We would not be, we would not have Little Bottoms Free Store without these guys who've gone through recovery coming and spending four, five, six hours, 12 of them, just doing literally whatever we want, whether it's putting together a, uh, a stroller or a wagon, which is always fun to watch these guys, very stereotypical big guys who go through recovery with tattoos. They're putting together these little kid toys. It's so great. To doing massive amounts of manual labor, so they're 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 a great partner and they're a great ministry for us. But there's a, there's there's tons of those, and I and we can certainly get you a list. Um, the other way to respond is um, uh, there are multifaceted issues um, that that need addressed. So all of this ties to housing. It, it's impacted by food insecurity, it's, it's tied to all of these other issues related to poverty. So the best advice, the most, it, it might feel distant, it might feel disconnected, but the best advice is to engage in just community development work like we do as a church. I mean, the work, the families that we're serving, friends, if you took, and I could have done this, if you take the map of our members of Little Bottoms Free Store, and you put the number of members and what zip codes they live in, and you overlay that map with the number of overdoses in Columbus area, it's the same map. The families that are coming to the free store are coming from the same neighborhoods where overdoses. I'm, I'm, I would guess that a majority of the individuals who are coming to our free store um, are, are personally experiencing drug addiction in their life and in their families. They have, we have infants who come in who are born premature, and they're getting diapers and baby clothes, and, and, and we can guess why they were born premature. I mean, we're not... Not to cast judgment, I'm just saying that the work that we do at Little Bombs Free Store is one of the ways that, like, we're not addressing addiction directly, but we, what's one of the places we refer to people if we find out that that's something they want to learn more about, we have places that we can send them. And just providing that additional support and that sense of community is one of the ways that we, we respond to it. Um, do, you, do you all have anything that you'd add? Yeah, Steve. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. Friends, I'm going to invite the band to come up as we get ready for our closing song. Um, I appreciate, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're a church and we're growing and we, um, you know, someday we're not going to be able to have this kind of conversation probably because it will maybe be in a bigger space or, you know. And so I'm just really grateful for that. Just be grateful for this moment um, where we can kind of just talk really casually with, <laughs> with all of you and have a conversation. Hopefully you heard everything. Um, hopefully you found it uh, somewhat educational or you can uh, sort of at least started the conversation for you. So as I mentioned, I'm, this is a completely shameless plug. Friends, you have the week of service handout in your seat, if you haven't filled it out already. And all of these organizations, are none of them are directly working in regards to drug addiction, but all of them are going to be impacting or interacting with people in the world um, of families who are being impacted by this, by gentrification, by even immigration, but even especially human trafficking. And so I encourage you, one of the action steps today, we don't have a specific drug-related action step because I wanted to really focus on the week of service as we kick it off this week, is if you're looking for a place to take action, there are some spots where you can sign up, um, and I encourage you to do it. Um, you, We don't know the individuals that we'll be interacting with. Most of them will be interacting with somebody or you'll be doing just some work. But I encourage you to step outside your comfort zone, to sign up for something, to give it a shot, to engage, to volunteer. Um, This is one of the ways that we can make a difference in our community. And it's a worthwhile, uh, good thing. We really are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So I'm going to, Tim, would you put up that uh, Galatians 6 verse again? I know it's not in the order. We're going to read this. In fact, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we get ready for our closing song. And I'm going to invite you to, I just really, as we finish this series in headlines, as we wrestle with some hard stuff and we feel overwhelmed by it, I'm going to encourage us to read this together as a proclamation of what it means to trust that God is able to do something through us and that we are called to be a church to make a difference. Will you read this with me? Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. God, we ask your blessing on us here, on these hard topics, on these conversations. Lord, you call us to many different things, and we can't, individually, none of us can do everything, but individually, one of us can do exactly what you've called us to. So make that clear to us. What what role do you have for us in bringing hope and peace and love in the name of Jesus Christ to this world? You've created us. You love us. You've created our neighbors and you love them. Help us to see our neighbors, especially those who suffer the way you see with the heart of God. Help us love them just as you do. Help us be agents of change. And all God's people said, 